The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sitting around. I know it's late, but we have a great show lined up for everyone tonight. Our guest tonight is Jake Anderson, author of the book Gone at Midnight. The Tragic True Story Behind the Unsolved Internet Sensation. His book deals with the Elisa Lam case. It kind of has seen a resurgence in popularity recently with uh, some um, TV specials, uh, American Horror Story uh, doing a whole season loosely based on a hotel very similar to the Sizzle. And obviously the uh, Netflix documentary, which uh, a lot of people have watched, uh, has kind of uh, brought this case back to the forefront. I'm going to read a little bit about uh, Jake's bio from the book. Jake Anderson is a writer, filmmaker, investigative journalist, activist, and web publisher. He runs the popular website, The Ghost Diaries, and is a contributing journalist for the anti-media and multiple alternative media outlets. Originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, He's a graduate of the University of California at Santa Cruz and currently lives in Portland, Oregon. You can find more of his work at theghostdiaries.com and you can also give him a follow on Twitter at OverTheMoonSF. So without further ado, let's go to our guest, Jake Anderson. Jake, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and really talk about uh, this book that I believe it's the only real book that covers this case that has fascinated people for many, many years now. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your experience writing this book? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating case for a number of reasons. And like a lot of people, I got obsessed with it uh, pretty early on um, as just uh, a mystery. Um, and the more I researched it, I kind of developed... I felt like a connection with Elisa uh, because we shared a lot of the same experiences. We both, she had struggled with depression, which I have in my life, as well as, you know, aspects of, of kind of the, the bipolar spectrum. So I, I got really into a different aspect of the case that I felt like not a lot of people were, were focusing on, which is the destigmatization of mental illness and how it, it's often overlooked, or not overlooked, but it's often kind of uh, rushed over in, in the true crime community, e even by well-meaning people with good faith efforts. It's just not something that, that people understand well or know how to talk about. So uh, initially writing the book, I, I was interested in, in the true crime and parapsychological aspects that are so prominent in this case in which so many people are fascinated by. But originally, I was going to kind of write more of a socio-political memoir about kind of how people view mental illness in the true crime community. And what happened, uh, to my surprise, was as I 
dug more into it, I actually started to find things about the case that were problematic to me um, across the board. And we'll go more into that in a little bit. But uh, so I went into it kind of more as almost like a, not a debunker, but almost kind of more of a, of, a, of a skeptic of the foul play theory. And I actually ended up going more into the direction of thinking that there is, you know, some kind of cover up going on in this case. I guess to answer your question, the book became kind of a cathartic experience for me. Reading the book, I, I couldn't help but almost feel your own struggles as I turned the pages it felt like it was a very personal project to you, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I went. I was going through a really messed up period in my life, and just you know, a lot of a lot of reasons. I, I do go into in the book, but I'm not going to get into them here because it would take forever. But the book definitely was very personal, and a lot a lot of people didn't like that aspect of it. Frankly, um, my my feeling going into it was that if I was going to be talking about Elisa's personal life. Now, granted, the blogs that I was drawing from, she made public. So it's not like I was going into her private diaries or anything. You know, she publicly posted about her, her, her issues very bravely, in my opinion. I felt like in order to be fair and, and to talk about that, I needed to put myself out there as well and talk about my personal demons and my issues and how they converge with hers in order to not only explain mental illness, but show uh, the relevance of, of it in, in my life and why I wanted to write about this. We can't talk about the Elisa Lam case without talking about the Cecil Hotel. It has a very dark history since its inception, it seems. What is the story about the Cecil? And uh, I believe you stay there. Can you tell me a little bit what your stay was like? Yeah, the Cecil is, you know, probably one of the more notorious hotels in the country, especially now, but it's been that way for a while. And, you know, it's one of these hotels that kind of opened up in L.A. in like the late 20s or maybe it was the early 30s. I get the timeline messed up now, but uh, it was originally planned to be this luxurious hotel. And then uh, what happened was uh, people started dying there. Pretty early on, uh, lots of suicides, uh, really grisly suicides. Um, and then the depression, the Great Depression hit, and that pretty much, you know, eviscerated the whole downtown area, all the capital that was coming in there. And that kind of further escalated this cycle of, of poverty. And, uh, you know, a lot of people just really down on their luck and really miserable were choosing to end their lives at the Cecil. People would jump out of the windows, uh, really just almost unbelievably disturbing stories of, of a woman giving birth in the hotel and like literally dropping the child out of the window. Uh, people jumping out and landing in the phone lines. Um, there, there were mur uh, murders, lots of murders there. Um, two different serial killers stayed there, uh, Richard Ramirez and Jack Unterweger. Um, and so there's just this really dark history there. And uh, I felt like I had to go check it out for myself. So I stayed there a couple times by myself. And I definitely felt, um, you know, uh, all I can describe it as just a very, like, dark, malevolent feeling. And I go back and forth in my life on believing in 
you know, believing in some of darker theories about, you know, paranormal activity and stuff, like uh, there's a more logical side of me that just thinks the human mind can go into some very strange places. And then there's another part of me that thinks maybe we can pick up on trauma from the past, um, pick up on maybe echoes of energy or something like that. And if that were to exist, the Cecil Hotel would definitely be a place where you could collect some of those echoes. And when I was staying there, I definitely felt like, uh, I mean, I really felt like I couldn't sleep. I really felt like I was being like hunted. Like that's the only way I can describe it is I felt like someone in that hotel was, was wanting to come and, and get me. And it was really disturbing. And I, I can only imagine what it was like for Elisa staying there alone in a new city, you know, possibly thinking she was being pursued by someone. So yeah, it's, it's a disturbing place. I haven't had the opportunity to stay at the Cecil, but you know, even just kind of walking by and, and I want to make clear that I don't want to just single out the Cecil hotel. I feel like really LA as a whole <laughs> has a bit of a shadow casting all over it, but you do have these little hot spots, if I may use the term where, you know, things seem to just kind of happen with more frequency than others. In the case of Elisa, uh, we read that she stayed at this hotel during what she called her West Coast tour. It seems, you know, that she had managed to have a pretty normal trip by all accounts. Uh, she had been down in San Diego previously. But definitely once she arrived to L.A. and checked into the Cecil, things began to go a bit strange. There is mention that she was staying with two other girls because for the folks that don't know, the Cecil is not your standard hotel. Uh, I believe that they have communal bathrooms and there's, it's like a hostel type. Uh, certain floors have a hostel type uh, setup. So Elisa was staying with two girls and then these girls reported that Elisa was acting a bit strange. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, that's all I know about it. There, unfortunately, there's still a lot about the case we don't know, and no one has interviewed these two women ever. Um, we don't know who they are at all, and all we know is what the manager reported. And, yeah, she says that Elisa was originally staying with two women and that at some point they wanted her to be moved out of the room because she was acting strange. This so-called strange behavior, it can kind of be corroborated. There were people who, uh, the man I spoke to at the last bookstore, uh, not the manager of the store that a lot of people uh, refer to, but someone else who, who said that, yeah, she was acting very kind of, very strange. Like he kind of described her as acting kind of manic and, um, and, and, you know, in the, in the surveillance tape, obviously, uh, the creepy, notorious surveillance tape, you know, she's definitely acting a, a little peculiar. Um, uh, there's evidence there of psychomotor agitation, which is a symptom of bipolar disorder. We know that she was off of her meds at that point. And so I think we have something of a perfect storm almost, uh, it, you know, she was off of her meds. It seemed like she was in a, a pretty dark period in her own life where she was concerned about her schoolwork. She was basically on the verge of dropping out of school. She was concerned about her relationships. She felt alienated from her friends. Um, and so she took this trip to kind of, you know, 
maybe snap out of it or, or get some momentum. And it, instead, she wound up at this place that was just the exact opposite of where she should have been. And it was a place that seems like it kind of fed off of her problems. And so it was kind of this almost synergistic effect of her escalating uh, bipolar condition, mixing very badly with the hotel and perhaps the people there. So, you know, obviously there's a lot we don't know about that night, unfortunately. But um, something uh, really disturbing was going on in terms of, of, of her stay there. In your book, you mentioned that a web sleuth spoke with Cecil employees that told him that Elisa Lamb's behavior included running around and laughing maniacally. It's an interesting thing that I've heard over the years. Uh, some people believe that people with mental health issues might be more susceptible to some paranormal activity. And there are many people that think that Elisa was experiencing, some people call it possession. I've heard that term being thrown around quite a bit, especially when you watch the video. She is behaving a bit strange. Talking about the video, uh, Dennis Romero uploaded the video to YouTube. In your book, you said that he refuses to say how he acquired it. It was, uh, you know, originally owned by the hotel, obviously, and we don't know anything about uh, that. And, you know, this is just one of many questions that I would have hoped would have been answered in the Netflix series. But we don't know uh, at what point the hotel gave this tape to the police. We don't know when or why exactly the police gave it to Dennis Romero to upload. Uh, and we don't know why either. Um, they said that the case was getting extra attention because she was a foreign national. But there's no real good reason why the public even needed to see that video, if you think about it. Um, it doesn't identify her. Uh, the, the video is too blurry. It, you, you cannot make a positive identification of Elisa from that tape. So what was the point of showing it other than to kind of almost uh, poison the well of the public opinion into saying, oh, well, she was having a mental illness. Uh, are, and of course, a lot of people also took it to mean that there was paranormal activity going on. I'm not sure what the point of the tape was. If there was someone else in it, maybe they could be a, a suspect. You know, have you seen this person? Blah, blah, blah. But we just don't know. We don't know why they released it. There's a lot of problems with that tape. There's a lot of problems with the case overall. And it's just incredible how little we know about it. And it's incredible how easily people buy into this. You know, look, yeah, people do very extreme things sometimes because of mental illness. I'm not doubting that at all. I, I struggle with aspects of it myself. I don't have nearly a, as an extreme of a case of bipolar as she did. You know, and so we don't know to what extent how severe her mental illness was to the point where, yeah, she might have been laughing maniacally. She might have had some paranoia. She might have imagined someone following her or maybe... Someone was following her. Um, maybe some of the energy from the past did infect her in some way, uh, along with the mental illness. Maybe all three things can be true at once. Uh, at the end of the day, we know that she somehow got onto a dark roof, made her way to an extremely uh, difficult-to-access water tank, climbed up the water tank, took her clothes off, climbed into this extremely narrow 
tank with her clothes with her, carrying her clothes into the water, and then that's where she remained. You know, is it possible that she did that on her own? Absolutely, but good lord, it, that's a that's a very strange narrative of events there. One thing that I I found interesting about the uh, tape, for some reason, there is one, at least one, maybe a couple of uh, screen captures of this surveillance tape. There are way clearer than the actual tape. The tape, as you mentioned, is blurry, super pixelated. So it leads me to believe that somewhere there is a, a higher definition uh, copy of this. You know, I don't want to keep pushing uh, some conspiracy narrative necessarily, but it's something that I found really interesting. You mentioned her climbing into the water tower, and I think that when we talk about this, to me at least, this is this is really the the key to knowing if she was murdered or she uh, climbed in on her own and it was just an accidental drowning. But the issue of the lid, early on, the police said that, that the lid was in place when they went up and found her. However, uh, I believe one of the custodians said later that the lid was actually removed when he went up and checked because people were complaining about the uh, water pressure. Can you tell me what's going on there? I mean, clearly, we're getting some mixed information here. Yeah, it's just one of many issues on which there's conflicting information. Um, yeah, the Santiago Lopez, the maintenance worker, said in his civil deposition uh, that the, the lid was off when he went up there. Um, you know, that's possible. It makes it a little bit even more strange that the police didn't see that when they went up there to check. Then there's other people that have said it was closed. A uh, first responder, credible source, Andrew Smith, who is now chief of police in Wisconsin City, he says when he arrived, the lid was closed. Uh, is it possible Santiago found it open and then closed it? Sure. Um, but, you know, it's obviously a critical issue because if the lid were open, it lends itself a lot more to she climbed in on her own. Whereas if it's closed, foul play seems very likely given that it would be almost impossible for her to close the lid over herself as she climbed in, just the way it is. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just another unanswered question. Talking about the police, what was it like dealing with the LAPD in regards to this case? Well, it was extremely frustrating, and to be honest, I got very little cooperation. The main detectives, Tennille and Stern, just refused to talk about the case, um, prevented other officers from talking to me. I don't know how, I mean, Tennille and Stern didn't appear in the Netflix series. A few other people did. I don't know how they got them. I'm sure they, they must have offered money. Uh, the police just don't want to talk about this case at all. Uh, they would, they want, one of the guys blocked me on Twitter for asking like a basic question. Um, the, the, the most information I got from anyone in the department was a recently retired, uh, deputy coroner, uh, Lieutenant Fred Coral. And he, he told me some interesting stuff. He's the one who told me that they never, the LAPD never actually processed a rape kit for Lisa. Um, he told me that the main detectives, uh, believed that someone had let her on the roof. If it's true, it's very important because it means that whoever that person was who let her up there remained quiet for the whole time that she was missing. Um, 
clearly this person would have known, oh, I let her on the roof. Maybe we should check the roof. But they didn't, you know, obviously tell the police that or the police was gone up there. Or maybe they did go up there and still didn't find her. I don't know. Either way, it's very strange the way the police handled this case. Um, and then I spoke to uh, a woman who has worked as a consultant for the LAPD. And she kind of became a little bit of an informant. Um, she, she claims that she spoke to some private investigators who worked with the LAPD on the case and that these investigators were not convinced that this was an accident, that they said that it felt suspicious and that it, it almost felt like the LAPD was kind of almost working with the Cecil Hotel to kind of sweep this under the rug. So I don't really think the LAPD get the benefit of the doubt anymore. There's just so many cases of corruption going back. And all we ever wanted was just for them to answer a few basic questions. And I don't think that they ever, I still don't feel like they've answered a lot of critical questions about how this investigation went down. And um, even the autopsy itself is problematic. Before I ask you about the autopsy, watching the Netflix documentary, it almost felt like it was kind of uh, giving a pass to the LAPD. Like, you know, it was almost like a little bit of a PR thing, kind of getting them off the hook on some of the uh, issues that you've mentioned that still kind of linger about this case. And what I mean by that, going back to the surveillance video, one of the things that people started noting, the, you know, uh, the, uh, the armchair uh, investigators when, when this uh, story first started to kind of make the rounds was that the video was slowed down and that the time code had been blurred and that there had been cuts made to the video. In the documentary, the, uh, the LAPD said that the reason why it was slowed down was to give people a chance to get a better look at Elisa in hopes that somebody would recognize her. Did that answer satisfy you? No, I didn't even see that part. But what I wanted an answer on was the time code cuts. There's a very obvious cut in the time code where the minute hand changes twice. Yeah, apparently in the series, they say that they, for operational reasons, they sometimes edit videos to make them more concise or something like that, mm -hmm. um, which is an explanation, I guess. Um, I thought maybe it was motion activated or something. But I don't know, just the, the placement of the cut is very suspicious to me. And again, I'm not saying that this is proof that there's some kind of conspiracy or they definitely edited the tape. Well, they're admitting that they edited the tape, actually. Uh, it's just weird to me. I don't know. It's just a very strange tape. And uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that answer sort of satisfies me. I guess I just don't trust them. I totally understand uh, why you wouldn't. And look, I, I am the first to admit that uh, police officers have one of the most dangerous jobs. I don't envy them in any type of way. And I am sure that they also want to get home at the end of the night to their families. However, the LAPD over the decades has uh, had a lot of uh, controversy, even up until last year. It's a department that has been plagued with a lot of problems. And to be fair, I think it has to do with being, you know, the department of such a large metropolitan area where, you know, a lot of things happen. That said, we also hold them to a certain standard. And I do agree with you that 
the way that this case was handled, I know that the Chris Dorner situation was unfolding at the same time, and a lot of resources had to be shifted to that. But with a case where so many people were invested in and and worried, and let's face it, if a young woman uh, visiting LA can't be safe here, that to me would be a very big issue as any type of uh, city official, (laughs) you know? But going to the uh, autopsy, there were a lot of issues, uh, including the length of time it took for it to come out. What are some of the discrepancies that we find there? It took a really long time uh, for the autopsy to come out, months longer than usual. And uh, ultimately, they kind of, in a very almost rush, it seems like they just suddenly changed the cause of death from undetermined to accident. And um, the problem is that they don't really, it doesn't look like they really established that she drowned. Um, At least one independent coroner has said that based on, you know, his look at the autopsy, it doesn't look like they established that there was enough fluid or really any fluid in her lungs or stomach that would uh, definitely necessitate drowning and that there were other things you can check when someone drowns that they just didn't do. He was saying that uh, they can't even rule out sexual assault, really, based on some of the trauma to uh, part of her body. You know, basically, this independent coroner says that the autopsy seems like almost a circular piece of reasoning between the coroner department and the police. The coroner seems to say, well, the police say that she was found in a water tank and that she drowned due to mental illness. And we don't have anything that says otherwise. So that's what we're going to put. And then the police say, well, the coroner said there's no evidence of trauma. So she drowned. It doesn't look like we really for sure know what happened. And This coroner says that she could have just as easily died from asphyxiation before she was even in the tank. And that there's essentially no guarantee that she drowned in the tank. And he cites, furthermore, that her body was found floating face up, according to Santiago Lopez. And this coroner and many coroners say that's unusual in drowning cases in still bodies of water, they're usually floating down, face down. Um, And so that alone speaks to the possibility that she was already dead before she was put in the tank. Now, there's no, you know, this is not 100%, and I'm not even necessarily arguing for sure that I think there was foul play. I'm just saying I think there's still a lot of anomalies in this case, and I I just still don't feel good about it. I feel like we're missing pieces of the puzzle. We can't talk about this case without talking about another aspect that has perplexed people, I mean, to this day, and that's the uh, issue of uh, the synchronicities surrounding this, this case. First of all, can you... Tell the listeners that may not be familiar with that term, what, what is a synchronicity? And then maybe tell us like one or two that, that really stand out to you. Yeah, so I mean, synchronicity is an interesting concept. Scientists like Jung and, and whatnot, they, they would describe it as kind of uh, a causal parallelism, whatever that means. Basically, it's 
it's when the external world seems to be uh, synchronizing with your own internal world in a way that seems incredibly coincidental. And most people have experienced it. You know, you know, you you happen to be thinking about a friend that you haven't talked to in a long time, and then five seconds later they call you or something like that. Um, and you know, this case is just full of really weird synchronicities and coincidences. Uh, the, the movie Dark Water that was filmed in the early 2000s, which has a very similar layout of events as what happened with water dripping down into a hotel and a, a woman drowning in a water tank. Um, really weird things, you know, the a tuberculosis outbreak in downtown LA and the scientists were doing a test to determine it. And the name of the test was the Lamb Elisa test. And that's the real name of the test. It was already established and it just happens to be her name in reverse. And it's just almost, it seems almost like it defies the, the laws of probability that, that that could be there. And um, so, yeah, it's just one of those cases that just kind of feels like there's just like a weird dark nexus of events that connected to it. And uh, yeah, it, I felt it myself. I was experiencing a lot of synchronicities as I investigated it. One of the ones that really tripped me out was that the last bookstore, which was one of the last places where Elisa was seen, I guess when you look up like the registry for the business, it's registered in Canada. And the yeah. zip code on there, when people punch that into Google Maps, the zip code actually lands in a cemetery, but not just any cemetery, the exact cemetery where elisa lamb is buried i mean how wild is that right yeah that's a good one and yeah i remember you telling me about that man we were hanging out at contact in the desert <laughs> and you know uh when we first met and we're talking about this case yeah that one is just perplexing is is all hell and yeah it's just there it's just full this case is just full of things like that and i think it's one of the reasons that there's so much lore and mystery and it's why people are so invested in this case is it just feels like it's some kind of uh, I don't know, like the cosmos just kind of toying with us almost. Did you try to get in touch with anyone at the hotel, like as far as management employees and, and what happened there? Did you have any luck? Yeah, I, I couldn't get anyone to really talk to me. Um, Amy Price wouldn't talk to me. Um, they interviewed her for the series. Um, a lot of people felt that that was kind of, you said that the series felt like a PR ad for the police. Well, a lot of people felt like it was kind of felt like a PR ad for the Cecil Hotel as well. And uh, I wasn't able to get much traction from anyone working there, unfortunately. And, you know, it's definitely one of the things, if I ever delved back into this case, I would definitely be trying to get in touch with not only people working there, but uh, people who stayed there. Very difficult to get people to talk about this case. But, you know, hopefully some new evidence can emerge. Hopefully someone saw something that night, can maybe speak a little bit more about how she got on that roof. I really think that's the biggest unanswered question is exactly how she got up there and why she was up there. One of my biggest questions was like they had uh, search dogs in the hotel when they were first looking for her 
And uh, I was surprised that nothing was really found. Uh, and it's interesting that apparently, according to the documentary, the uh, search dogs did pick up a scent on the 14th floor, which is the last floor before the roof, and that it stopped right at the window uh, where the fire escape is. Mm. In the surveillance video, uh, people have analyzed this thing to a level that's unbelievable to me, and they they figured out that the, that what we're watching... Uh, as far as the footage of Elisa, it's all happening on the 14th floor. Uh, yeah. So I guess it, it lends a little bit to the theory that she did make her way up to the 14th floor and then took the fire escape to the roof, which would explain why the alarm was not triggered uh, on the uh, door. Um I know that you have been very active uh, on Facebook with uh, the Elisa Lam Web Sleuth team, and I've seen some of the comments and people have asked your thoughts on the Netflix documentary. From what you've seen of it, uh, what do you think? We, we just said that it was a bit of a PR uh, thing. Do you think that they did some justice to the case, in your opinion? Um, some, I, I think. Uh, I, I, I mean, my, I think, uh, I have mixed thoughts on it. I haven't seen the whole thing, so I, I, I don't want to pan it too much. Um, I guess I just kind of feel like it was a little bit of a wasted opportunity um, with the budget that I'm sure they had and the platform they had to popularize the case. Um, it, it doesn't feel like he did a really thorough investigation. Um, it, it, it just seems like there's a lot we still don't know a lot of the major questions uh, uh, about what happened. And I guess, um, you know, I find it a little weird that it's called crime scene, but concludes that there was no crime. But then the main explanation they're offering, mental illness, it, it doesn't really feel like they go too much into that in a real way either. Um, so I'm just not really sure what the point of it was, uh, I guess. Um, they, they, they did seem to hit on a few pieces of, of, of information that were interesting, but it seems like they just kind of established that she was having mental illness problems, but we already knew that. And, you know, mental illness is not mutually exclusive with foul play. A lot of predators will specifically target people with mental illness and, you know, the evidence before us, the, the surveillance tape, it really does look like she's trying to avoid someone. And maybe she thought someone was after her, and we just don't know. And, uh, you know, to be fair, it's, it's a really perplexing case. It's hard to really find out what exactly happened. Um, I guess I, I would have just, uh, I kind of just feel like they wasted an opportunity to really dig into some of the more critical aspects of the, of the police investigation, at least. But, you know, I've documented uh, the anomalies and questions I still think are out there. And, um, you know, I'm not necessarily casting aspersions on any specific person or saying anyone specifically was involved in a cover-up. I just think that there's something still very strange to me about this case that doesn't sit right with me. And I, I don't, feel like the series necessarily kind of closed the case uh, in my mind. One of the things that I, I learned about when I was reading your book was that there was another 
piece of surveillance tape that showed Elisa with uh, two men and they handed her a box. And uh, obviously, you know, that that is a huge, huge uh, piece of information. And then the documentary discussed that, you know, this box was actually a box from the last bookstore, uh, which she had visited. However, you know, we really don't know anything more about these two men, just like we don't know anything about the two women that she stayed with when she first arrived. Considering the publicity of this case, do you find it odd that, you know, these people haven't come forth if, again, yeah. not, not to push a conspiracy theory really hard here, but isn't it odd that if we really want to get answers and if people, you know, uh, want to kind of clear the air that these four individuals have not come forth and said, hey, yeah, you know, we were there and yeah, she was acting a bit strange or, um, you know, something else. Yeah, I, I find it really odd that none of these people have come out And, um, I, I, I think furthermore that I, I guess I'm just troubled by this, this idea that as long as you can definitely say someone was having a mental illness problem, that that definitely solves the case, you know, that, that, but that, that's not true. Like she, she could have been having a mental illness problem, but that, that doesn't, that doesn't solve the case. That doesn't answer the question of what happened. I, I don't like this assumption that just because someone was unstable or having a medical crisis, that we should definitely just assume that she was going to wind up naked in a water tank dead and that everything is answered. That, that to me seems like it's stigmatizing mental illness unnecessarily and possibly depriving someone of justice simply because they had a medical condition. Uh, I, I don't think if, you know, mental illness is obviously uh, something that can cause someone to do strange things, but I don't think it's fair to just assume that she would have done this by herself when there, we, we know that there's just as much as mental illness is out there and is a reality, uh, sexual assault, predation, uh, and violence against women is also just as common. So I, I don't like this assumption, and especially in a hotel where there's many documented cases of sexual assault. I've spoken firsthand with people about being sexually assaulted and stalked in that hotel by people working there. Uh, it's just ludicrous to me to assume That, so, that, that someone couldn't have been trying to target her while she was there and while she was in this vulnerable state, um, combined with all of the anomalies and all of the unanswered questions about who saw her, what was going on that night. I don't know. To me, the case is still just as open. Uh, does it mean that there was foul play necessarily? No, it doesn't. It just means to me the case is unsolved and we need to keep digging because I don't think it's fair to her to just assume That she uh, did, that she died the way they said she did uh, in the absence of definitive evidence of that. You mentioned uh, sexual assault, and it's interesting that when I first discovered this case shortly after, you know, Elisa disappeared and eventually was found, I too went down the the rabbit hole, as many people uh, did, and I remember coming across this blog by. I believe it was uh, an adult film actress and yeah. she 
stayed at the Cecil and she tells the story of just, uh, you know, one of the security guards apparently just kind of following her around and uh, getting into the elevator with her. And she, understandably so, being uncomfortable, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I emailed her and was able to get in touch with her and she gave me the full account and she was uh, 100% sure that this person, this employee, security guard, was 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 definitely sizing her up and it seemed like was trying to follow her there's no doubt about that and that that's just one account of many um and so i guess uh, i'm troubled by this lack of investigation into the hotel itself and it, it seems like they were given a really big pass when at the very least, I feel like people need to be investigated about what's happened in that hotel. And, you know, my uh, conspiratorial side also found it very interesting that in a relatively short amount of time, the hotel decided to undergo a major renovation, which, again, my conspiratorial side, makes me think that it's almost like an attempt to uh, get rid of evidence, if you will. Do you find it strange uh, that the hotel would do this? Obviously, they say it's because the image of the hotel is just, uh, you know, it's really bad and they need to rebrand. But it is a bit odd that they decide to do that, isn't it? I, I find it, uh, at the very least, distasteful that they're renovating. One of the renovations they're doing is they're adding a, a pool and a bar on the roof. so. That, to me, is incomprehensibly uh, distasteful. But uh, also, there's all kinds of weird stuff that went on with that hotel uh, in terms of their corporate structure. Um, literally, the month that Elisa died, the hotel was finalizing a merger with CBRE, which is one of the world's biggest real estate investment firms. Uh, this was a literally a hundred million dollar deal that was finalized that month. So, if you want to get into a conspiracy theory, we can ask whether the hotel had an invested interest in concealing the body, or at least delaying the discovery of the body until after this one hundred million dollar merger was finalized. <laughs> that is definitely uh, a, a suspect, to say the least, uh, considering the timing. Let me backtrack a little bit because there there was something that I found really shocking. And mind you, I read the book. Uh, I read the book about a year ago. Like I said, it was a journey. I felt like I was walking in your footsteps. And at many points, I felt quite scared uh, at some of the situations you found yourself in. But one of the things that really um, stuck out to me was reading about the custodian that discovered it, Elisa Lam, if, if, if memory serves. And Apparently, he moved to Mexico. Can you tell me a little bit about the circumstances surrounding that? Yeah, so admittedly, this, this is a narrative that I, I needs more corroboration and needs more evidence and, and documentation. Uh, I want to be clear on that. But I will say that I had a friend of mine who's a really good investigator and journalist. He was able to get in touch with Uh, Santiago Lopez's half-brother. Um, can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, this half-brother, assuming this really was his half-brother, I don't know why this person would, would want to lie about something so specific like this, but 
He says that shortly after this case went down, I don't know if it was before the civil deposition or after, he says that Santiago really abruptly moved his family to Mexico. Um, I don't know if he was originally from Mexico or not, but that he moved them there and he said it happened really quickly, like almost overnight, with, like without people knowing. And he said that, that he was given money, that he that he had been given money specifically to move to Mexico. Now, obviously, this sounds incredibly salacious and suspicious. I tried to hire a private investigator based in Mexico to try and figure this out. Um, obviously, the series succeeded where I didn't, which is actually getting an interview with Santiago Lopez. I, I don't think he said anything more than what he's already said. And I don't know if he has something to hide, and I'm not accusing him of anything. But that was a very strange confession uh, that I heard about that. And I also spoke to a, a bouncer at that restaurant, Cole's restaurant around the corner from Cecil Hotel. This bouncer told me that he spoke to an off-duty officer that week, the week that Elisa went missing, and that this officer told him that they had found some of Elisa's belongings in a dumpster in Skid Row. Now, again, this is anecdotal, and this is this one is secondhand. So, uh, again, as a journalist, I want to be clear, this is, this is not corroborated, and I would like to get much better documentation on this. But it, it's just another lead that pointed me in a strange direction. And I questioned this guy about it for a pretty long period of time to try and make sure he was credible to me. And uh, he, he seemed like he knew what he was talking about. And uh, that's, that's a very strange piece of information to surface, in my opinion. I'll give the documentary a credit on the fact that they did raise awareness to a very, very big issue here in the city of L.A. currently, which is the issue of homelessness. And for those not familiar with uh, Skid Row, Skid Row is a, is a section of town where a lot of folks uh, who don't have anywhere to stay, and many, many of them have uh, struggles with mental illness and habit. And just from my own personal you know, experience talking to people, I've heard stories, one in particular that came to mind while I was watching this documentary was uh, this young man who uh, had just arrived in LA and had wandered into Skid Row and you know, not having anywhere else to stay himself. He tried to uh, live there as uh, best as possible. And uh, the night that he left was because he literally saw somebody get stabbed to death only a short distance away from him. So this is a very uh, dangerous area. It's, a, it's an issue that needs to be addressed by the city. And if Elisa's belongings were found there, uh, I mean, it definitely, again, kind of steers us in the direction that there was some foul play. However, we can't dismiss all of the other elements in this case that make it mysterious. As we mentioned, synchronicities, some paranormal aspects. You've said it best yourself, a, a perfect storm. In your opinion, what happened to Elisa Lam? It's something I've thought about for so long, and, and I just don't know if we're ever going to find out exactly what happened. Um, part of me feels like she ran into uh, the wrong person and died somehow, whether through an act of violence 
or from an accident and was possibly concealed in the tank later. Uh, another part of me thinks that this could have very well been a horrific accident. I just don't know. I, I wish, I wish I could say what, what I do, what I can confidently say is I do think that this was a botched investigation. And I think there's a lot we don't know. And it's frustrating going into it. I leaned probably 70, 30, that it was an accident. Now I probably lean 70, 30, that there was some kind of foul play going on here. I just don't know what it was. And, um, maybe it was all three things. Maybe, you know, it was partly an accident for mental illness caused by her being stalked. I mean, actually that, that's probably to me, one of the most likely things is that she was being stalked and are pursued by someone preyed upon and whether the person was going to hurt her or not she because of the state she was in she became extremely scared and agitated as as anyone would be and so she possibly maybe decided to hide in the water tank i know that sounds strange but there's no unstrange explanation of what happened here. Somehow she ended up in a water tank naked. I don't know why her clothes were off. Um, some people have said maybe she was trying to, uh, that they were weighing her down when she was in there, so she took them off. Um, I, I think it's possible that maybe she was actually trying to hide in the tank because someone was pursuing her. So in that explanation, we have both foul play and uh, a tragic accident. And who knows, maybe there was influence on both of these people, the, her and the person pursuing her from the kind of history of the hotel itself. Maybe there was some kind of influence from the hotel that was causing this, this horrible cycle to continue again. That to me is really the only kind of consensus I can arrive at right now in my head. One of the things that we can't forget in this case is that Elisa had a family. Did you try to reach out to any family members? I know uh, they remained pretty quiet throughout, even during the press conference, they did not uh, address the press. Can you tell me about any attempts you made in contacting anyone on her side? Yeah, I, I tried to, I sent a message to her sister and I tried to reach the family you know, they, they haven't done one interview. They, they haven't spoken with anyone in a public setting. I think they were just uh, understandably uh, horribly traumatized by this, not only from the death, but from having to see this publicly litigated and relitigated on the Internet over and over and over again. It's just horrifying what they went through. I don't blame them for not speaking uh, unfortunately, it does mean it's going to be very difficult to get any kind of momentum to get the case reopened or looked at. But I, I wanted to speak with the family, um, and I tried to say that what I really want to do is, you know, humanize Elisa and kind of tell her story um, as best I, I could. Um, but yeah, none of them wanted to speak, and uh, they haven't interviewed with anyone, and that's that's their decision. And uh, yeah, you got to feel horrible for them. And uh, at this point, I think if they want to, they want to remain silent and just kind of 
try and deal with this as much as it, in whatever way they can. I mean, I feel like they, they have my eternal sympathy. Definitely. I, I can agree with that. This case reminds me a little bit of uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, and that's Oliver Stone's uh, JFK. There is a scene where Kevin Costner's character is uh, having a, a, an argument with one of his fellow attorneys, and uh, yeah. his attorney tells him, you know, that he's being ridiculous. How can the U.S. government and the Cubans and the mob all be uh, in a conspiracy to cover up this murder when a secret can be kept in the people in their own office? And it seems like that is the situation we're being faced with the Elisa Lam case because there's so many questions uh, with the LAPD investigation. There are so many questions with how the, the hotel management handled this disappearance. And some people even look at the family and wonder, is their keeping quiet something that we should wonder about? What is your opinion as far as uh, are we just seeing a, a conspiracy where there isn't one, or are these all valid questions to be asking? So there was a lot of conspiratorial hoopla in this case that went way overboard, and I, I document it in the book. Um, there's a lot of really just unhinged people that, that you know, harassed the family, that, that, that made this case a lot more unscrupulous than it, than it should have been. And so... There's a lot of bad, safe actors that were asking really ridiculous questions. And, um, but having said that, there's also, um, I think there's reason to ask questions here. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, ascribe to, you know, uh, Occam's razor, which is the simplest explanation is true. But there's actually a, kind of a corollary to it that I talk about called uh, Hickam's dictum, which is, uh, sounds like a Dr. Seuss phrase, but uh, Hickam's dictum is basically the idea that there, that a lot of events don't have one simple explanation, but more of a constellation of more complex answers that feed into one another. So that sometimes an event doesn't have one cause, but uh, a lot of individual causes that merge together in a strange way. So that's kind of harkens back to what I was saying about uh, what happened to her that night. Maybe there was a lot of different truths going on at once. Someone was following her. She was also having mental illness and it caused her to climb into a tank and she died as an accident, but it was also kind of foul play because someone pushed her in that direction. Uh, and then you could have also had some paranormal thing going on too. So you end up having multiple sources of the truth. And I think in reality, a lot of times in a lot of different fields like evolutionary biology, quantum mechanics, that's kind of what it is. It's not Occam's razor, it's Hickam's dictum. There's a lot of, the truth is complicated and there's a lot of different competing narratives. And I think with conspiracy theories, as we've seen in the last few years, there's a lot of bad faith actors weaponizing conspiracy theories in a bad way. Um, but at the core, we should always still be asking questions where there are anomalies, uh, and especially where people's lives are at stake. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking tough questions, and I don't think we should stigmatize ever the search for truth as long as it's being done in a good faith manner. And I, I think where mental illness is concerned, I think we have to do a better job of, of not stigmatizing victims in cases like this. 
when we first met in uh, Contact in the Desert some years ago uh, through our mutual friend, uh, Ron Patton, producer for uh, Ground Zero Radio with uh, Clyde Lewis. Big shout out to them. Um, you were uh, in the early stages of working on actually a documentary about this case. And this is before, you know, the Discovery Plus, uh, or I believe they released a documentary not too long ago on the, on the Cecil Hotel. And I know American Horror Story did a whole season based around the Cecil Hotel and using it that as kind of like the framework for their story. And obviously this Netflix documentary uh, that came out recently. Can you tell me a little bit about how that is going currently? Because I know a lot of people that uh, follow you got to know you through your efforts to make this documentary. Yeah, it, it, it's a sore subject for me. I mean, it, it's hard to make a documentary. We did a Kickstarter to raise some money for it. Technically, right now, it's on hold. We've had a, a number of, of bad beats in terms of getting more involvement with producers we need to really do this justice. And, you know, frankly, we just we need more money. It's, you know, documentaries, especially investigative crime documentaries, it costs a lot of money. We started with like 20000 That that's, that's not even close to enough. Um, some of these documentaries have half a million dollar budgets, if not more. We were really lucky to have support we did from people. And I still have intentions on finishing a documentary about this case. Um, I was uh, temporarily working. I had a production company that I was, we were literally about to sign the paperwork to start you know, developing something together with the footage I already had. And then they found out that the Netflix series was coming out. So, you know, basically some bigger players kind of beat us to the punch and kind of cashed in on the, the popularity of the case. And I still plan to finish a film on this. Um, I would like to get enough funding to really do you know, a proper investigation of it and to really, you know, try and answer, I, I, I don't want to release another documentary that is still not answering some of the core questions. Um, I do want to make a documentary that really dives into the mental illness aspect of the case. And so, you know, I guess to answer your question is um, the documentary, it's, you know, it's taken us, we're about four years overdue at this point. And I feel horrible about it. And uh, the book was a kind of a, a starting point, a way of navigating through the information I had. And um, I guess, you know, to answer the question, the documentary is still, I hope, going to happen. And I think that by, by the subject being repopularized again on Netflix, I think could give us an opportunity to give it alternate perspective on on the subject and so i think there's still an opening for us to address this in a way that is you know more respectful to mental illness and that can maybe dig a little deeper into some of these unanswered questions and so that's what my plan is is right now to um i'm going to be you know working on other cases and whatnot but i i am going to be revisiting this and we still have a production company that is interested in trying to develop with us, but we need more information. We need a way to dig further into the case because right now there's just still too many people not talking or just not giving enough information. So that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. 
it's definitely unfortunate that the documentary is not here as we had hoped. However, I must say that one of the, the cool things that, that has come out of that has been uh, your book, Gone at Midnight. And I just want to read the, the blurb on the back by uh, James Renner, author of uh, True Crime Attic, which actually sums the book best for the folks that maybe haven't uh, picked up a copy yet. Uh, he wrote, The definite book on Elisa Lamb, Jake Anderson continues the tradition of new journalism and gonzo reporting by weaving a personal story of mental health and anguish with a confounding L.A. mystery. And I must say, you uh, definitely showed some hints of uh, Hunter S. Thompson there, inserting um, your own experiences uh, into the story. And to me, that's what made this book uh, such a, a page-turner. I can't say it enough. Uh, I felt like I was living through your shoes uh, every, every page that I turned. So for the folks that would like to get a copy, where can they grab one? Yeah, I mean, you can get them online or you can get it in your local local bookstore. Um, it's pretty widely available at this point. Um, you know, if you can support your local indie bookshop, that's always, I think, the best way to go. But you can also find uh, Kindle versions or digital ebook versions online if you want, or you could get the audio book if you like audio books. And um, yeah, man, it's, you know, I appreciate your support and, you know, I've appreciated your, your friendship over the years, man. We were, we were, you know, even hitting the streets together at one point uh, working on this and, and we even interviewed you for our, our documentary. And so, it, you know, it's always, it's, it's been a, a crazy journey, but um, I, I was, I was definitely appreciative of, of your friendship during this time. And, I, I hope we're able to collaborate on a on another case at some point coming up, man. Absolutely, absolutely, without a question. Uh, whenever you you need our help, uh, we'll be there. And I I want to say before we wrap up, uh, there was a chapter uh, <laughs> where you actually uh, chronicled our encounter at contact in the desert with uh, Genevieve, and you called us this. Uh, I believe the 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 term you used was. Uh, post-goth uh, couple <laughs> and uh it was it was one of the uh the the laughs that the one of the few laughs in 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 such a tragic and just uh overwhelming story so uh, i do want to thank you for that it, it meant a lot that you <laughs> included us in there uh and i do encourage people to to go grab the book uh, you won't regret it. I mean, it's. Uh, I read it in two days, and that was probably a day too long. Uh, if I if I hadn't had so many interruptions, I'm pretty sure I would have devoured it in less than 24 hours. Um, Jake, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you uh, in the future. Thank you, man. I appreciate it, and yeah, we'll we'll talk again soon. That was Jake Anderson, author of the book Gone at Midnight the tragic true story behind the unsolved internet sensation. The Elisa Lam case still has a lot of questions that remain unanswered. We can only hope that uh, we'll get the answers that we desperately seek uh, and bring some closure to this case. Definitely pick up a copy of his book uh, at your local bookstore, or you can get a copy on Amazon. And definitely dive into this book. It's, uh, it's a real page-turner, as I mentioned during our interview. Uh, big thanks to Jake and big thanks to you guys for uh, tuning in. Don't forget to uh, follow West of the Rockies at WOTR Radio on uh, Twitter, Instagram, 
Follow the page on uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash West of the Rockies. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash WOTR Radio. And of course, visit the website, WOTRRadio.com. Till next time, take care, be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Till then, bye-bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.